One of the things we have to understand is that our kids are on a journey. You know, they're not little adults and getting things wrong is part of that journey. And so understanding that mistakes are okay, that if they get themselves into trouble and they make a mistake, even if it's in the realm of emotions, it's fine. It's part of growing up and they'll be okay. Welcome to the Beautifully Complex podcast, where I share insights and strategies on parenting neurodivergent kids straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Beautifully Complex podcast. I am really excited today to be joined by Dr. Jason Kahn, who is co-founder of Mightier. And we're going to talk about that tool, Mightier, and also about the state of children's mental health, the current wait times and limitations, and what parents can do to kind of bridge that gap, if that's even possible. So thanks so much for being here, Dr. Khan. I really appreciate you sharing some of your time and wisdom with everyone. Can you start by telling all of our listeners who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So as you said, my name is Jason Khan. I am the chief science officer of a company called Mightier, which I also co-founded. My dear works on building tools that help kids build emotional strength, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about a little bit. I am also a part-time instructor in psychiatry at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And perhaps most importantly, I am the father of two children, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. Awesome. Let's start, I think, by talking about kind of where we are with children's mental health right now. There's definitely seems to be a crisis of availability mm-hmm. And I will think a lot of parents are really struggling with that and struggling with the impacts of the pandemic and other things that are going on. So do you want to touch on that first? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, you said it, and I'm curious what you're seeing and hearing too, but over the course of pandemic, we've had so much change in children's lives. Mm -hmm. We've, by necessity, to protect physical safety, we've closed down schools, we've had less social contact, we've had less contact with friends, family, and the like. And I think as to be expected, that change in uncertainty has impacted children of all ages. And I think now we're starting to see it in the numbers, right? So we hear nonstop about children waiting for care for months at a time. We hear nonstop about, in Massachusetts, we hear nonstop about if children need care, they're actually waiting in the emergency room Mm -hmm. uh, to try to find care. The rates of anxiety and depression among adolescents have never been seen before. Just stat after stat after stat, just reinforcing that things have gotten really out of hand. I don't know another way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really impacting so many people and families. And I think it's really tough when you have a child who clearly needs some expertise in mental health and you can't find it. (laughs) You can't find anyone who's accepting new patients or, you know, you try to take them to the emergency room and there are no beds in the psychiatric area. I mean, I've I've been hearing those stories for years, so I can't imagine how bad it is at this point. And so then, you know, that leads us to the question, what can parents do? What do they do when they really need a counselor or therapist for their child and they can't find someone who has availability. There are options for parents. And I think it's important for parents to understand the resources and community that are around them. And I mean, speaking as a parent, and then also in this field, I think the starting point is 
enlist the resources in your community that you can enlist. And so be transparent with your child's school about what you need. Mm -hmm. Be transparent with your child's pediatrician about what you need. I think different parts of the country are going to have different attitudes and resources towards this, but making sure the community is aware of the need is, is step one. Pediatricians are taxed. School counselors are taxed. Like you're not, we're Mm -hmm. not going to find people who are, who are not overwhelmed, but if they don't know, they can't help. And so just trying to start that process there just so everybody is on the same page and utilizing the community that wants to support your child, that wants to support you is really, I mean, step number one for any parent, you know, beyond that, there are services. What we do at My Dear is, I mean, we do something for six to 12 year olds. We build a in-home intervention for a skill called emotional regulation. And not everyone is familiar with the idea of emotional regulation. Emotional regulation is a foundational skill. So it's a strength. It's something that kids build up. And when kids have this skill, they tend to thrive. Yeah. So you see kids with emotional regulation, they do better in school, better peer relationships, better family relationships. Um, it even like projects out later into their health and well-being. And one of the things that has been noticed, especially like at the beginning of my career at Boston Children's, is that kids with mental health diagnoses, they often could benefit from some extra supports around building emotional regulation skills. And absolutely, we like parents to know that it can be built. So wherever your child is, it's, it's not destiny. Like your child can get better no matter where they are. So we work on putting this skill through video games, through biofeedback video games. We work on building the skill and building it in people's homes. So it's something that families can do in their home and get started even while they're waiting for other services. Yeah. And there are other things out there like my dear. So it's not just my dear, but there are things that families can bring into their homes. Yes. And I've noticed that that availability is really growing, that we're looking more and more toward technology and how we can use that to help kids, you know, grow and learn and build skills, executive functioning, emotional regulation, even attention and mindfulness practice. So it's really amazing the opportunities that we do now have for our kids within our homes. And I think that it's just so valuable, especially given the climate of mental health care and what is and isn't available. I love that you brought up speaking to the school counselors as a resource, too, because I'm seeing so much more school avoidance and school refusal. There's a lot more anxiety around school now that kids are going back. And I think it's very, very important that the school knows what's going on and what the need is, and they can provide whatever help that they're available to provide as well. You know, school counselors, I think we don't tap them enough as parents. We don't have enough conversations with them, but that's what they're there for. Yeah. And I would even, as a parent, I would go further too. I mean, I would absolutely involve the school counselor, but I would look and what are the other places and where the other adults in your child's life where there is an opportunity to enlist even just the tiniest amount of help. Mm-hmm. So is your child on a soccer team, is your child on a church band, whatever it is, I think there's space where those adults, they're not going to be experts. And so it does add some extra work for you as a parent to say, how can I help this other adult support my child? You know, these are people who all care about your child and the, all the children in their lives, and they, they want to help. Mm-hmm. And so if you are willing to be transparent with this group, there's a lot of space where we can really utilize the supports that are, and we're lucky, like, I mean, these supports are coming back. And so parent, you really can utilize these supports if you're willing to be open and share. And I know the stigma makes it hard, but... If you're willing to be open and share, I think there are a lot of people who are willing and would be thrilled to help. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think we have turned a little bit back toward community, maybe because of the pandemic. And I think that that's so, so valuable for families in general, not just families who are neurodiverse, but for families in general. Like, you know, the more people that care about our kids, the better they feel about themselves, right? They, you know, just having another caring adult in their life is positive for their mental health. I'm not trying to minimize, you know, mental health issues, depression and anxiety, but I think that always when we care about kids, it helps to boost their self-esteem and how they feel about themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for parents to realize that the stress they feel is real. And because that stress is real, and that's going to impact their body, that's going to impact their emotions, and then that's going to be part of how they interact with their child. Mm -hmm. And finding these extra supports, finding these places where they can, where you can lessen the stress on yourself and not feel like you need to hold up the entire burden it's going to help you as a parent. It's going to help you as a human. And it's also going to help your child. And to your point, exactly. That's not going to minimize, it's not to minimize anxiety or depression or many of the other very real challenges that both kids and adults face. But having that extra support is always going to help. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just thinking about now, you know, how do we get our kids to open up to us? Because especially teens, right? They try to hide what they're going through. They don't want to talk about it. There is a lot of stigma still. And I see often parents who are kind of blindsided by some intense mental health stuff that their kids have kept bottled up and they finally sort of, you know, explode or, you know, the pressure cooker blows and they feel sort of blindsided. And I think it's, we still don't have this culture of talking about what we're struggling with with others. So how do we get our kids to open up to us so that we know that there's something that we need to be helping with. Absolutely. And I will, you know, I'll add the disclaimer that my expertise is more with younger children than with teens. Mm -hmm. But I think with teens and with adolescents, you know, we have to understand they're still in some ways, they're still growing and their brains are still growing. And so the ways they want to talk and listen might not look completely familiar, but that doesn't mean they're not talking and listening in their own way. Mm. And so... I think for parents, there's this real awkwardness that comes with like being willing and making sure that a child knows there's a space to have these conversations and that feel like a diverse set of feelings are okay. And as their, I mean, their brains are getting a lot bigger as they go through adolescence, which means new feelings are coming into play Yeah, and that it's okay to explore these feelings and it's okay for them to go find some safety of where they want to explore these feelings. I think you know, the what listening looks like for an adolescent is probably not going to feel terribly satisfying to a grown-up yeah. all the time, but they are listening and they are, I mean, uh, the parent relationship is still a really important one in their lives. And beyond that, how they show and how they act, like, I think if you are giving them that space, like what they show you and what they give you might not be direct and it might not be immediate, but I think, you know, you want to have that space and then Part of growing up are these really large episodes. And I think, you know, for a parent, that's when the real challenges come because it's hard in the moment to give your child space and try to like understand like the best thing you can do is be supportive in the moment of a crisis. And yeah, that's really hard. As a parent, we're wired to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So it is really hard to kind of sit with and say, I'm not sure what to do, but I'm listening. Not sure what to do and I'm listening. And I like the way you put it. And I think, again, being open, I mean, to the point you've already made, like understanding that 
as a parent, depression and anxiety are real. They might even be beyond your expertise to help or your ability to help as a parent. So Mm -hmm. being supportive, but also understanding, like, as we talked about before, this is where you want to bring in the community. Absolutely bring in the pediatrician as a starting point and then look for services that can continue to build on that. Yeah, and I think it brings us back to the conversation about feelings and emotions and regulation. We have a culture where we don't talk about our feelings very much, or we only talk about the feelings that we feel like are positive, and we want to shut down the feelings that we feel like are negative. And And the reality is that all feelings are natural and okay, and it's really what you do with them, you know, how you regulate, right? How you get back to regulated when you're dysregulated, and how you manage the emotions. And I think that there's so much as parents that we can and maybe should be doing with our kids, even early on and really young, to build their emotional intelligence, right? Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about really young kids, from birth, really, children are depending on grownups around them to help them build and foster the skill of emotional regulation to the point where, I mean, you can almost draw a map. So babies are completely dependent on their caretakers. You know, if something happens, then the response and the regulation is completely externalized. And so it's called co-regulation. And then that skill builds over time. Really, as the brain grows and builds the capacity to take on more and more regulation itself. For grownups, I think one of the things we have to understand is that our kids are on a journey. Mm. They're not little adults. They're not going to have all the answers. And getting things wrong is part of that journey. And so I think that's another piece, especially when it comes to emotions and regulation. It's a child understanding that you as a grown-up like face challenges and that you face difficulties and that you have to moderate your response and choose your response based on the situation and that understanding that mistakes are okay. Yes. That if they get themselves into trouble and they make a mistake, as, even if it's in the realm of emotions, it's fine. It's part of growing up and they'll be okay. Yeah. I love that you brought that up. We talk about that so much on this podcast is that as parents, we have to be real with our kids. Mm-hmm. We have to let them see us make mistakes, fail, see what we do with that, right? See us upset and how we manage it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I feel like we've kind of had this parenting culture where we want our kids to think that we're perfect. And if they think that we're perfect, they are going to automatically feel like they never measure up because nobody's perfect, right? And I think it's so, so important that we show our kids real life and that we're human beings too. And that also brings in modeling, right? It brings in showing our kids an example that they can attune to and regulate to, but also knowing the skills, right, of how to keep going when you do make mistakes, keep going when you do feel really bad. You know, what do those skills look like to regulate? Yeah, I mean, I think it just comes down to the fact that just embracing your child's mistakes is, it's really, really hard. I mean, I can mm-hmm. think of, I mean, like I said at the beginning, I have two children. I can think of so many examples where like, you want to drop into fix it mode or you want to drop into like, you want like something around the line. It's like, no, you know what? We've got to put the mistake in perspective and move on and just, it's okay to learn. It's, it really is. And, you know, this gets discussed a lot in academics as either grit or resilience or growth mindset or many of these things. And I think You know, even with that, we try to like put kids on a static, like here is your measurement. And we don't reflect on how does change happen? How do kids grow? How do kids get better? If we as grownups embrace the idea that kids are changing, kids are growing, 
And our job is not necessarily to reflect some sort of like perfect destination, but some sort of process under which they get better. Kids are naturally going to find a way to thrive if we set up that environment where that's what we encourage. Yeah, I love that. It's very hopeful. Okay, so I want to take a minute to talk about Mightier. Mightier is a clinically proven mobile gaming app, which was developed at Boston Children's Hospital. It's already helped more than 100,000 kids. One of the things that's so great about Mightier, it empowers both parents and kids, and it's all done through play. So how does it work? Kids play on a tablet or a phone while wearing a heart rate monitor, and Mightier incorporates breathing exercises and other calming techniques as part of the game. Kids get to see when it's time to cool down and learn how to do it themselves and parents get to track their progress. Boom, empowerment. With time, those calming skills become muscle memory. All it takes is 15 minutes a day, three days a week, and 87% of parents see improvement in 90 days. So check out mightier.com penny to learn more about the science and how Mightier works. That's mightier.com penny. You mentioned how important the parent-child relationship is. It's so crucial to our kids' mental health and our own, I think, as well, right, as parents. But also, it's really crucial to have our kids open up with us, to be able to talk to us, um, to feel like they can do that and to let us in so that we can understand what's going on and can offer help where needed. Yeah. I mean, I so wholeheartedly agree. My advice is for a parent, like, don't hold on to one image of what that relationship could look like, because as your child changes and grows, that relationship is going to change and grow. And it might have mm-hmm. different needs at different times. And that's okay. Knowing that your child is always listening and is there. And I don't know. I mean, again, as I interweave my professional and personal lives, like the part that I take away is that I know, like, there are going to be days where my child is going to talk to me. There are going to be days where my child is not going to talk to me. But no matter what it looks like, I know in some form or another, I'm supportive that relationship is is there. Yeah. And it brings up another good point too, which is that everybody struggles, right? So sometimes our kids are going to have a bad day. Sometimes something awful is going to happen. You know, they might get teased at school or whatever it might be. And knowing that that's part of life, you know, that was a journey for me as a parent. I couldn't stand the thought of my kids struggling or hurting, right? And I think so many parents have that same sort of intuition. And it was a journey for me to be able to say, wait a minute, that's part of growth. That's part Mm -hmm. of being a child. It's part of learning. It's part of life. It's, you know, it's how they build resilience and grit, these things that we were talking about. It's important for them to be able to do hard things and push through and, I think that part of that is that emotional regulation piece that we've been talking about. That's how they can get through some hard stuff, right? I mean, in some ways, this is where the neuroscience like ties so nicely into the conversation because Mm -hmm. when you think about a kid's brain and at our core, when we face challenges, our brains are wired to respond chemically. Straight up, like there's a biological piece that happens when we face a challenge. And I mean... It truly is rooted in when 
people and precursors were running away from tigers. Like we had to get our bodies ready for that fight or flight reflex. Yep. Part of childhood is just discovery, discovery of that process, discovery of your body, discovery of how you are going to respond to these and how to productively respond to these, especially because we are social. And so understanding like that, you know, when you're getting taunted or teased or you can't do something or something's too hard, those chemicals are still going to come flooding out into your brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, They absolutely are. And you're going to have a reaction and that reaction is not always going to be positive, especially if you're a little kid. And again, like part of childhood is, is our having those feelings and understanding those feelings and understanding the reaction of your body. And again, not all kids are at the same place and some kids need extra support, but if we hide those feelings from our kids and we hide those sensations from our kids, then they're not going to grow and be able to, to manage them as they get older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, those conversations start early and not really conversations, but just really helping our kids be okay with discomfort, being okay with feeling different emotions and working through them, you know, teaching them how to work through. One of the things we talk about here a lot is, um, and my dear, is like how emotional regulation is honestly a lot like bike riding, right? So mm. you ask any adult, like, have you ride a bike? No one can tell you how to ride a bike. Right. <laughs> you have to experience it. Right. You try to write down directions. It won't work. And if we called in kids to a classroom or an office and said, like, we're going to give you bike riding lessons, we want to teach kids how to ride a bike. And these emotions are part of your body. They're part of who you are. And you have to give kids that experience, just like riding a bike. There are tools that can help them be better, tools like deep breathing or progressive muscle relaxation or the many, many other skills that you'll get out of therapy. But until you've experienced them working, it's hard to know. You have to know how it feels to go up, 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 up. And you have to know how it feels to come back down, how it feels when you have control over bringing yourself back down. Yeah. And, and so many of our neurodivergent kids are avoiders of discomfort. I have one myself. I call him a serial avoider because that wall goes up instantaneously always just in like if he doesn't know if there could possibly be something that wasn't super comfortable, right? He'll try to avoid first. And we've had to do a lot of work on, you know, you can do hard things. And and that's kind of the hurdle is until they've experienced that they can do hard things, they really resist because they don't necessarily trust that that's true because they don't have any history or basis for that yet, right? So it can be a really tough challenge for kids like ours to put themselves out there and trust that I can do this and I will be okay. And yeah, maybe it will feel not great or kind of crappy, but I can do it. And I have found that we certainly weren't doing that early enough or consistently enough. And it became a bigger issue as he got older. And so we're still, you know, in the young adult age, working on some of that. And I always in the parents that I work with, I'm like, okay, you've got to work on that. If they're avoiding discomfort, we've got to, we've got to jump on that because it's so valuable because, you know, they're not really regulating, right? They're just sort of putting on the brakes and they're not learning to regulate either. It's funny, right? Like they're, they're choosing a strategy where they don't have to be in a place where they regulate. And I mean, that is that absolutely the strategy. As kids get older, they do get more cognitive control. And so you can start to like build some more of a, you know, more appraisal, more of the traditional therapy skills with older children to sort of move through challenges. But mm-hmm. listening to you talk, like it's, it's just such a good reminder that we are interacting with kids' bodies when we interact with their emotions. Yes. And so there are a couple words 
like either mind body awareness or interoception, which is this knowledge of how emotions make your body feel. Um, mm-hmm. But just interact with that and play with like, I mean, that's the other piece. Like, I mean, and this is what we try to do at my dear, but try to make it playful because otherwise it just gets hard and it, it definitely, it definitely can build. But even in, even when it's built, like, I mean, I think if we embrace the fact that it's a journey and we embrace the fact that these are really skills that can be built up. So these, these mm-hmm. kids have, everyone has this strength. We can build it up and everyone can make progress. Yeah. I think it's so important too, that we're looking at progress, not perfection. And we're looking at really tiny baby steps, like any movement forward, any positive change is great. You know, our kids aren't going to learn these skills overnight. (laughs) As you said, it's a journey, it's a process. And we need all the reminders we can get as parents, I think of that, especially when things are tough and things are more challenging. I want to circle back and talk a little bit more about my dear. And I thought maybe you would want to share how it works. Like, how does it help kids build emotional regulation skills as they play those games. Yeah, absolutely. It's fun and it's a little counterintuitive. So with My Dear, My Dear is biofeedback based. And so what that means is when you play My Dear, if you're a kid, you come into this environment. The first thing you do is you put a heart rate monitor on your arm. And that heart rate monitor serves to give My Dear and yourself a window into your emotions. Mm. And so you've got this heart rate monitor on your arm and you come into My Dear and you're going to be greeted by this library of video games. So you choose one that is right for you or many that are right for you. And you play these games. And just like life, what happens when you play these games is you get to this point of frustration. Like all games have this, but we've all played video games. We've all seen this point where we just, the game gets hard. There's this moment in the game. And Mm -hmm. within my dear, we see that. And so what we do then, which is the part that it feels a little like standing on your head to, especially to grownups, <laughs> is we make the game harder. So we watch the child's emotions, we see they've reacted and we make the game harder. And the reason we do that is because that's how life works. So when your emotions start welling up and you're, you start having this reaction to the challenges and frustrations in your life, things don't get easier for you. They get harder. Yes. And at that moment... We help children lower the temperature. We call it going back to the blue. They can do it with a skill. We'll scaffold the skill if they want. So they can do deep breathing. They can do progressive muscle relaxation. They can do visualization. Or they can do it by themselves. Most kids do actually transition to do it more independently over time. And what's so powerful about Mightier is it visualizes this whole process. It turns it into a game on top of a game. And so kids play and they do it hundreds, if not thousands of times. And... In the course of these, we call them cooldowns, but in the course of this practice and these hundreds of moments of practice or thousands of moments of practice, it becomes automatic for children. And we see this. I mean, we see this. We've done, like I said, my background is in academic medicine. We've seen this bear out in scientific trials, which is mm-hmm. why we started my dear, because we had scientific data that this was incredibly powerful. Yeah. But we've also seen it. We've been in over 50,000 homes. We've seen it in people's homes. We've been working in medical settings. We've been working with insurance carriers. We've been working with families with children with autism, like with just countless settings, we've been able to see this process of playing games, finding moments of challenge, and then cooling down in moments of challenge. It's fantastic, but we've seen it change lives, which is why we feel really good about what we do. Yeah, it's amazing. And you're really leaning into kids' interest as well. You know, I think that's a really valuable thing that we don't often do enough because we're scared of technology. We're scared of screen time. 
and we tend to fight it. And sometimes it can be a really valuable tool to really help kids with differences, to build skills where they're sort of lagging behind. And I've been excited about Mightier for years. I think that it's super powerful because it's a way to connect the sort of learning and growing in a way that our kids are really open to and responsive to. You know, there's so many things that we try where we're basically just lecturing or asking them to do things a certain way or trying to talk them into somehow being different, right? Somehow, you know, being more organized or being less emotionally reactive and that doesn't work. And our kids tend to just sort of tune out, right? And so with Mightier, you're really grabbing their attention in a way that they really relate to and that they'll buy into, right? Because we always need their buy-in or we're not going to be able to really make change or improve things if our kids are fighting against it. This is a place where technology really has so much to offer because we need an environment where their emotions can come to life and where they can play with their emotions and interact with their emotions. In some ways, like we're told, you know, be wary of screen time. But this is an environment where kids can learn and they can grow and they can get more powerful. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that we can lean into as parents. And it's something that makes me excited. Yeah, absolutely. What a great conversation we've had. I think it's really impactful for our parents who are listening and maybe also professionals and educators and just understanding that we're on a journey and that we make mistakes and we grow and it's okay and that there are tools out there that can help at home when maybe the resources that you're looking for are not yet available, tools like Mightier. So really thank you so much for sharing some of your time and your wisdom and and your passion around, you know, what you're doing and the science behind it and seeing awesome results for kids. I mean, it's amazing work. For everyone listening, you can get a link to Mightier, which is mightier.com, as well as their social media and other ways to learn more about that tool and that program and also the science behind it. I know it's available at mightier.com, but you can get all those links in our show notes for this episode, which are found at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 176 for episode 176. And I hope that you'll take the time to do that and dive deeper and check out my dear. With that, I guess we will wrap up. Anything else you wanted to add, Dr. Khan, before we close? Uh, Thank you, Penny, for having me. It's been wonderful to have this conversation with you. Yes, thank you so much. With that, we will wrap up and I will see everyone on the next show. Thanks for joining me on the Beautifully Complex podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses and parent coaching at parentingadhdandautism.com and at thebehaviorrevolution.com.